welcome to our service of worship on what is a beautiful sunny Sunday morning here in Bundaberg. As is uh, become our pattern, we're going to leave the live feed running for a few minutes, which will enable uh, people to log on and get everything ready with their sound and, and all of their settings. Uh, take a few moments, do that now, and we'll start the service in a few moments' time. here in Bundaberg. Wherever you're watching from uh, this morning or whatever time zone it might be for you, why don't you uh, tell us where you're watching from, make a comment in the comment section, <coughs> excuse me, interact with us and uh, hit the like button or um, just do something that lets us know where you are and, and where you're watching from. And even if you're watching this as a recording later on in the day, please still comment on it, still send us uh, a message saying where you're watching from and uh, and we'll get to all of those comments in the week whether you're around the corner whether you're around the globe it is wonderful to be able to worship together and to be part of fellowship and connecting in this way I say to you this morning the peace of the Lord be with you thank you if you are on your own at home, know that I have said that to you. If you are with family members or friends, simply pass the peace to them as well. Friends, as you do that and as you engage with us uh, in those comment sections, uh, I'll take a moment just to remind you that on Tuesday nights we have our Connecting Conversations, which is a new uh, a new thing we are doing where we are interviewing a person, having a conversation about the Sunday sermon, talking through some of its practical aspects, what it means to us, how it relates to us, how it affects our lives. It's only a half an hour conversation. It's meant to be interactive and uh, we would love for you to join us 7 o'clock uh, Bundaberg time on Tuesday evenings. And today is of course Mother's Day. So a very special blessing to all of the mums out there. I hope that you'll be spoiled. I hope that both mothers and grandmothers will know that you are loved, that your influence is unique and very special. And uh, may God bless you on this day. I always think of Mother's Day as a bit of a celebration of women in general because there are many women who may not be somebody's biological mother, but they've fulfilled the role in many different ways. Many people are seen almost as second mums to people who love them dearly. They play that role in other lives and we thank God for you too. And I'm also conscious on this Mother's Day that it is also a difficult day for some. There are those who would uh, want to be mothers but for whatever reason are not able to be. There are those mothers who are far away and disconnected from their children or grandchildren. And that's particularly true this year as families haven't been able to, to travel and, and spend weekends together. There are those who are missing mothers who are no longer with us and, uh, and grieve their loss on this day and remember them with fondness and, uh, and we thank God for them. And there are also those mothers whose children have passed away and are missing their, uh, their beloved child 
on a day like Mother's Day. For them, this day is difficult, and we remember them in our prayers as well. As you celebrate today, may you know that you are loved and that you are cherished, and uh, I pray that you are, are blessed beyond measure. Let us begin our service with a word of prayer. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, as we come before you this morning, we give you thanks and praise that you are a God of grace, a God of mercy, a God of love, and a God of forgiveness, that you reach into our lives and seek us out, that our failures do not prevent you from loving us and being faithful to us, even when we haven't been faithful to you. We thank you, Lord God, for the resurrection, which we still continue to celebrate as Easter has only just passed. We thank you, Lord, for the beauty of the resurrection appearances that we have looked at over the last few weeks, for the wonders of what we have learned of, of living in the power of the resurrection and of how this moment defines us and changes the world for all eternity. We thank you for, for the infinite love for the grace and wonder that flows from Calvary. And we pray, Lord God, that as we worship you this morning, you would know that we worship you in love, that we offer our lives to you, that we want to not only serve you, but we dedicate all that we are to you. Every part of us seeks to bring you glory. Each aspect of our lives we, we hand over to you to be faithful. And we pray, Lord God, that as we seek to honor you, that our lives and all the lives that it touches, that your love may be known, that your presence may be felt, that the difference may be seen, that Jesus' name will be known. To you, Lord, be all the glory this morning as we commit the service into your hands while we pray together the prayer that you taught us. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as in heaven. Give us today our daily bread. Forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For the kingdom, the power, and the glory are yours, now and forever. Amen. Friends, we're going to spend one more week in the resurrection appearances before we move on to a new sermon series. And today we're focusing on the miraculous catch of fish, uh, the, ex the extended part of the story, which is the reinstatement of Peter. We started last week looking at the miraculous catch of fish and, and living in the power of the resurrection. And today we'll be looking at how we can, we can have a future that doesn't live in the shadow of failure. <clears throat> and so if you want to follow with me in, in the Bible, if you have your uh, mobile phones handy and look it up in there if it's easier for you, I'm going to be reading from John chapter 21 verses 15 to 25. That's John 21, 15 to 25. Following on from the catch of fish, where uh, Jesus has made a coal fire on the beach. They have shared together um, a breakfast of the fish that they have just caught miraculously and brought to shore. And then this happens. When they had finished eating, 
Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Yes, Lord, he said. You know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my lambs. Again, Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He answered, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said, take care of my sheep. The third time he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And Peter was hurt because Jesus asked him the third time, do you love me? He said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my sheep. Truly I tell you, when you were younger, you dressed yourself and went where you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will dress you and lead you where you do not want to go. Jesus said this to indicate the kind of death by which Peter would glorify God. Then he said to him, follow me. Peter turned and saw that the disciple whom Jesus loved was following them. This was the one who had leaned back against Jesus at the supper and had said, Lord, who is going to betray you? When Peter saw him, he asked, Lord, what about him? Jesus answered, if I want him to remain alive until I return, what is that to you? You must follow me. Because of this, the rumor spread amongst the believers that this disciple would not die. But Jesus did not say that he would not die. He only said that if I want him to remain alive until I return, what is that to you? This is the disciple who testifies to these things and who wrote them down. We know that his testimony is true. Jesus did many other things as well. If every one of them were written down, I suppose that even the whole world would not have room for the books that could be written. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Part of our worship, friends, is to bring before God our gifts and our offerings, as well as our prayers for others. And uh, thank you once again for your continued commitment to giving. If you'd like to uh, contribute and, uh, and worship God with the gifts that you offer Him financially, our details are on our website and on our Facebook page. And uh, that is, um, as I said, it's part of our worship and we thank you for that. Thank you for your commitment to faithfulness. If you do um, give through this electronic means, please just mark in the reference City Offering and uh, you may leave your name out and leave it anonymous. And uh, there, are, there is still opportunity, obviously, to drop off envelopes at the church office if you prefer to do that. Shall we bring to God our thanksgiving for these offerings and also our prayers of intercession? Let us pray. Lord God, you give us all things. We graciously acknowledge that every blessing is from you. And we give you thanks for the way in which you undertake, for the way in which you care, the way in which you look after, and the way in which you meet our needs. We offer to you these gifts today as, a, as an offering of our thanks and part of our praise. May you be worshipped in these gifts 
the online giving and those brought to the church. May you be honored through them. May you know, Lord, that they represent our lives and, and all that we have. They are not only a thanksgiving, but a, an opportunity to say that all we have is yours. You be glorified. Take them, we pray. Use them to continue the work of ministry of this church in this community. We also bring before you, Lord, those prayer requests that weigh heavily on our hearts. There are things, Lord, that are known only to ourselves and to you. Relationships that we worry about. People who we are concerned for. Loved ones who are going through difficult times. People who are bereaved. Stressed and anxious. Those facing difficult situations at home and those who have received news they haven't wanted to hear. All of our requests we raise to you this morning. Together with our continued prayers for our medical fraternity and, and our government and, and state leaders as they seek to do their best and navigate a way back out of the restrictions. Grant wisdom and guidance and protection we pray. And lastly, Lord, we pray that the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts may be acceptable and pleasing in your sight. God, our Redeemer, Savior, and Friend. Amen. <clears throat> As I said, we're going to be looking at uh, Peter's life after failure and looking at the fact that the future we don't live in the shadow of failure. But when I think of failures, there are a couple of things that immediately come to mind. On a large scale, I often think of the Russian generals in World War II who came up with what they thought was a brilliant plan for destroying German tanks. Now, I know that this is particularly cruel. Their idea, though, was to develop something called a dog mine. And they would teach dogs to associate the undersides of tanks with food. And then they would strap a bomb onto the dog and release them onto the battlefield. And when the dog got under the enemy's tank, a sensor would explode the bomb. And sadly, that would be the end of the dog. But it would also be the end of the tank. The plan, though, hit an unfortunate snag for the Russians when the dogs proved unable to spot the subtle differences between German tanks and Russian ones. And so consequently, a plan that was put in place of day one on the war for Russia was abandoned on day two with a completely destroyed division of Russian tanks without the Germans even firing a single shell. That's a failure. On a personal level, I once went for an interview for, as an apprenticeship uh, for an electronic engineer. And I sat down for the interview, and the technical director of this company pulled out a circuit diagram. He unfolded it about seven times. It was so huge, it didn't even fit on the boardroom table. And he looked at me and said to this young, uh, very young person, not so long out of school, having done minimal studies, he said to me, right, tell me everything you know about this diagram. 
But I'd never seen such a complicated thing in my entire life. I looked at it. I didn't even know whether it was the right way around. I said, after some measured thought in which I was trying to look like I knew what I was uh, saying, I said, well, it's quite big. The technical director looked at me with a sense of disbelief, folded up the diagram without another comment, and then took out an actual circuit board full of little electronics. He put it down in front of me and said, okay, what can you tell me about the circuit board? I looked at it carefully. I rubbed my chin and in measured thoughtful tones said, well, for a start, <clears throat> it's green. <laughs> Things just went downhill from there. It was the longest interview of my life. I walked out of that interview and I was so embarrassed at my failure that I actually wanted to hide away from myself. I don't know if you know the kind of feeling I'm talking about, the kind of feeling where you, you just think about what happened in a situation and you, and you begin to get that little inward kind of cringe. Have you ever had that feeling? Well, this was one of those times for me. I got the job, by the way. No one was more surprised than me, I can tell you. And I later found out that the technical director said to the other directors, what I like about this guy is that he knows nothing. <clears throat> I'm not going to have to spend any time with him unlearning things. We'll be able to start teaching him our way, the right way, straight away. And do you know that some of the best memories of my working life come from the time that I worked in that company and the things that I learned. But I wouldn't have said that when I walked out of that interview that I was even remotely in the running for a job. I just wanted to hide away. I wanted to never show my face again. I wanted to not tell a single person about how awful that interview went. So great was that sense of failure. I think Peter must have felt like that right from the Garden of Gethsemane on the night of the crucifixion, only exponentially worse. Because he, of course, is the other story that comes to mind when we think scripturally of failures. In fact, the two disciples we most readily identify with are Thomas and Peter. Thomas, because of the doubts, and we too can have doubts, and there's uncertainty from time to time, and, and we identify with Thomas in that regard. And Peter, because like Peter, we mean well. We want to be faithful. We like to think of ourselves as passionately serving Jesus, but yet we know that we often fail. And so these two disciples uh, we, we know them best. We identify with them best, especially Peter. What a failure. I mean, he sank when he was trying to walk on water. He fell asleep when Jesus asked him to stay awake and keep watch in the garden the night he was crucified. He ran away after telling Jesus that he would be with him no matter what. And worst of all, right in front of Jesus, he denied knowing him, not once, not twice, three times. You think walking out of a bad interview 
is a cringeworthy moment. Can you even begin to imagine the embarrassment and the failure that Peter felt? It's so shocking. We still talk about it 2,000 years later. It forms part of every single Easter reflection. But it is the extent of that failure and the seriousness that somehow makes us feel a little better about ourselves. Because we look at that story and we read the scripture that we read today and we know from history that despite the horrendous failure, despite that cringeworthy moment, Peter was used by God in a very powerful way. And we think to ourselves, well, if that can happen for Peter after such a huge failure, then maybe there's hope for me still. Maybe God can still use me. I mean, I'm not quite as bad as Peter. I didn't deny knowing Jesus, but I still often fail. And if, and if God can sort out Peter's failure, maybe he can sort out mine too. I mean, let's be honest. Who doesn't fail at faithful Christian living? Who's getting it right all the time? Who never comes away from a situation thinking, Ooh, I've messed that one up. Sorry, God. But here's where I think the difference lies between Peter and us. It's not in the magnitude of the failure, but it's what takes place afterwards. Peter moves on from that failure, and he lives in the victory of restoration. He lives in the power and the beauty of forgiveness. He lives in the glorious freedom that comes from being released from that failure and reinstated. And he does mighty things for God. Whereas on the other hand, we often become bogged down in our failure. We tend to live in it. We tend to focus on it, to remember it. We spend half or more of our prayer times confessing it and, and begging for forgiveness over and over again. We become so fixated on failure and, and our sin or preoccupied with what went wrong that the freedom of Christ, the beauty of the restoration, the wonder of forgiveness, the truth of failures forgiven and forgotten escapes us. And the greatness of the life that God plans for us gets lost in the burden of failure. C.S. Lewis, in an excellent book called The Screwtape Letters, in which a, a senior devil is writing or trying to teach a junior devil on how to stop uh, Christians being faithful to God. He writes, he says, This is one of the master, meaning Satan, this is one of the master's best strategies. If you can get the Christian to become preoccupied with their failures, from then on, the battle is won. If you can get the Christian to become preoccupied with their failures, from then on, the battle is won. The wonderful, liberating, hopeful good news of the resurrection, though, is that failure is not a destiny. Failure is not a, a frame of mind or a foregone conclusion. Failure isn't a state in which we're supposed to live. Failure isn't an unforgettable, unforgivable issue from which we allow the guilt to dominate our lives. At its worst, failure is just an event, a moment in time. But from Jesus' perspective, it's not an event that defines us. It's not an event that defines how we live or how God thinks of us from this point forward. 
Can you imagine how different the New Testament would be if Peter lived in the shadow of that failure instead of the freedom of restoration? Can you imagine how different the early church would have looked if Peter never moved past the shame of always reminding God how he had denied him three times? How he had run away in the garden. So what happened that day for Peter? What happened that enabled him to live in the freedom of forgiveness and restoration? Well, the first thing that happened was that Jesus found Peter. Peter sees in this moment that Jesus seeks him out. Jesus seeks Peter out, not the other way around. In his failed and miserably embarrassed state, Jesus doesn't expect Peter to come to him. He goes and finds Peter. In the film Forrest Gump, Lieutenant Dan angrily asks Forrest one day, he says, Gump, have you found Jesus yet? And Forrest looks at him with this confused look on his face and says, Found him? I didn't know that I had to look for him. And of course, we don't. He finds us. There's no hiding. There's no running. Jesus seeks Peter out. You know, in Mark's gospel, which is the very uh, first account written of the resurrection, the angel says to the woman at the tomb, He is not here. Jesus is not here. He is risen. Go and tell the disciples and Peter. Isn't that interesting? Go and tell the disciples and Peter. Peter's not included in a collective noun of disciples. And I, I can well imagine that this, this could be something of his own doing. It's quite possible that Peter was that embarrassed and that ashamed and that desperate to hide that he removes himself. It could well be that it is... I mean, if you look at our story, it's Peter's suggestion that they go back to fish. He's the one who says... I'm going out to fish. I'm heading back to the old business that we had before all of this stuff came along. And just like I felt after that interview, I'm sure Peter just didn't want to face anyone, didn't want to speak to anyone, hiding away and certainly not considering himself worthy of being a disciple any longer. But Jesus seeks him out. Go and tell the disciples and Peter. Go and tell him that he's not written off, that he's not a permanent failure, that no matter what he's done, I'm coming for him. I'm coming to find him. Luke even mentions that Jesus appears to Peter separately, about which we're not told anything more. But the point is, Jesus goes to him. <clears throat> Jesus looks for him, excuse me. It's Jesus who goes to the disciples at the lake. He takes the initiative in reaching out to them. In modern Christianity, the emphasis is often on us coming up to Jesus. 
He went all the way to the cross, and, and, and now we have, to, we have to come to Him. <clears throat> but the resurrection itself is the very act of Jesus coming to us, of Jesus reaching out to us. How beautiful is this? How wonderful is His grace that in our failures and in our shortcomings, that in our embarrassment, we don't still have to come and try and find an angry, finger-tapping God who's waiting for us to apologize? Not at all. He sees our failure, and He comes to us. My child, I see that this has gone wrong. I am here. I want to restore. I want you to know that I'll never leave you no matter how bad the fail. You think that you're hiding in the darkness, but even the darkness is as light to me, says the psalmist of God. Where can you go from my presence? I am here. I have found you. That is the good news of the gospel. That is why we are Christians. This is the grace-filled gospel of Jesus Christ that in our failure, He finds us. He finds us. But He not only finds Peter that day, He restores him or reinstates him. He puts him back to his rightful place. And this is the part where having had breakfast together with this lovely coal fire on the beach, the smell of freshly cooked fish in the air and the excitement of this huge catch <clears throat> sitting in the nets beside them, Jesus says to Peter, Do you love me more than these? Yes, Lord. Then feed my lambs. Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me? A second time, yes, Lord. Then take care of my sheep. The third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. You know all things. Feed my sheep. I don't have time to go into all of the possibilities of what Jesus was meaning when he asked uh, more or less the same question three times. But what does seem pretty obvious is that he asks three times because Peter denied him three times. In fact, it goes a little deeper than that. The word that is used in verse 9, <clears throat> where we are told that, that Jesus made uh, a coal fire on the beach, the only other place that that Greek word is used in the New Testament is, uh, is the verse that says that on the night where Peter denied Christ, they were sitting around a coal fire. So Peter's moment of failure on that night is public. It happened three times around a coal fire. Isn't it beautiful that his reinstatement is the same? It's public. It happens three times around a coal fire. There's no doubt for Peter that, that given those circumstances, Jesus is acutely aware of the full extent of his failure, but wants to restore him anyway. It's like Jesus has, has cleaned the wound. There's no mess left inside. There's nothing that is hidden away. And he brings 
restoration. He brings healing. It's amazing to see what Jesus does there for Peter. But I tell you what's equally amazing, friends, is to see what Jesus doesn't do in that context. Did you notice that Jesus doesn't try to make Peter feel guilty? He doesn't humiliate Peter publicly. He doesn't say to him, hey, Peter, are you sorry for what you did? Do you know the full extent of what you did? Have you given this some good, hard, long thought? Are you really, really sorry? Can you tell me exactly all of the things that you are sorry for? Let's relive this thing moment by moment. He doesn't do any of that. Jesus doesn't even make him promise to do better. doesn't even do that. He just says one thing, asks one question. Do you love me? Do you love me? And what is arguably the greatest failure in the history of failing God, the only thing that's important to Jesus is, do you love me? Think about how different that is to what so many uh, modern churches will teach about sin and failure, where the emphasis is always on the confession. And it becomes the gospel of confession. You have to confess every little thing to God. Make sure you don't leave anything out. And then when you go to bed at night, do it all again. Confess it all again. And we're doing exactly what C.S. Lewis warns us of. We become preoccupied with our failures instead of living the power of forgiveness and restoration and healing and reinstatement. My professor used to say, confession isn't good news. Forgiveness is good news. Forgiveness is good news. It's not the gospel of confession. It's the gospel of forgiveness. It's the gospel of grace. And Jesus knows that the cross is a done deal. That Peter's forgiveness has already been bought and paid for and given. The only question Peter is, Do you love me? How beautiful is that good news. How wonderful is the fact that the grace of God extends beyond our failures, beyond even our ability to confess, and focuses on our ability to love. For if we love Jesus, if we love Jesus with heart, soul, body, mind, and strength, The rest takes care of itself. I forget who the quote is attributed to. And they said, how do you know what you can and can't do? He said, I'll tell you what. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, body, mind, and strength and do whatever you want. Because if you love Jesus, the rest takes care of itself. So how do we How do we go forward then? Do we throw away confession? No. There is a place for repentance. Peter himself says so at Pentecost in his sermon. But it's not the confession and repentance that so many Christians today want to practice, where where God is waiting for us to remember every little thing as sin controls our lives and our thoughts. The kind of confession and repentance is, is one of the heart. It's an attitude of repentance that most importantly of all is encompassed by love. 
It's not our confession upon which forgiveness and restoration depend. It's on Jesus' love. It's on the cross. And what he asks in return is that we love him in return with our whole lives. Which brings me to the final thing Jesus does as he restores Peter. He challenges him. He challenges him. In fact, everything about this encounter is challenging to Peter. It starts off with, will you obey me and throw your net on the right side of the boat? Are you going to trust me? Are you going to, I'm challenging you. Will you listen? It then moves on to, do you love me? And then follows, well then, feed my sheep. And then Jesus ends with, in fact, Peter, give your life for me. You will be crucified. You will die for this love. And we know from church history and tradition that he did. He did. The restoration, moving beyond living in failure, Restoration and reinstatement comes with a challenge. Love me. Serve me. Give your life for me. As we seek restoration and freedom from living under a preoccupation with failure, the same challenge is given to you and to me by Jesus. In effect, we are asked the same questions. Will you love me? Will you serve me? Will you give everything to be faithful to me? Will you shape your life to be like mine? When we live in the freedom of restoration, when we live in the wonder of, of grace and forgiveness, it's to these challenges that we must rise. Not because we're too scared of the consequences if we don't, but because we are so aware of what has been given to us we are so aware of the beauty of the freedom of forgiveness, so aware of the wonder and the hope of restoration that we live with this, this uh, mindset, with this lifestyle, with this, this attitude. We live in love and gratitude and service to Christ. Will we make mistakes again? Of course. We all do. We all will. But how those failures shape our lives going forward is what Jesus is really interested in. He seeks us out, he restores us, and he challenges us. You know, no one was more surprised than me to get the call from that technical director that I had got that job. And on my first day, I walked into that company with a, a sense of fear and dread because I knew exactly how badly I had failed in that interview. I was almost embarrassed to walk in and wondered if, if there was going to be snickers and, and whispers from the other staff. This is the guy who only knew that the circuit board was green. But you know, it wasn't like that at all. I walked in as an apprentice who knew nothing. But I was immediately treated as an equal. 
And I was respected by the others from the moment I started, even though I had done nothing to deserve it. And they welcomed me. There was a desk set out for me. They made me feel part of the family. And do you know, friends, it made me want to please them in everything that I was doing for that company. I worked harder. I took on, on challenges. I, I gave my absolute best, and it was the most wonderful job and company to work for in a secular environment. In essence, it was their challenge to me. You failed, but you've been restored. Will you give everything in this job? Did I make mistakes? Of course. Some of them were quite expensive ones. But overall, rising to the challenge meant a freedom of knowing, meant the freedom of knowing that I was safe, that I was cared for, that I was loved, that I had a place where I belonged and I had a place where I could give of my best. And the rewards were incredible. I think Jesus wants us to know those same things as he seeks us out in the depths of our failure, as he restores us and challenges us. And so, friends, for both you and me, may we know the freedom and the good news of a gospel that is all about resurrection and restoration, of a gospel that does away with failure and allows us to live in the freedom of forgiveness. Amen. Let us pray. Lord God, as we hear your words to us this morning, we know there are, are times when, like C.S. Lewis says, the preoccupation with, with failure almost cheapens what you did on the cross. And today, Lord, as we hear this gospel of, of, of forgiveness and restoration, as we hear the, the beauty of, of grace lived out in the freedom of freedom from failure. May we know that you seek us out. May we know, Lord God, the, the beauty of not having to find you because you come and find us. May we know, Lord the challenge of loving you and serving you as you restore us. As you reinstate us and, and allow us to know the beauty of the fact that regardless of failure, we are your family. We are restored. Let us live with the love of Christ let us live in the freedom of forgiveness. Let us live in the beauty and the wonder of a, of a resurrection that we know happened and that we know forever changes us 
as people living free in the beauty of love. Amen. Friends, uh, as we have shared in this worship service this morning, I pray that you would have a blessed day going forward. Uh, wherever you are in the world, as you may be celebrating Mother's Day, may it be a beautiful time for you. Um, whatever you're doing, may you know the grace of God upon your life today. I look forward to catching up with you on Tuesday night on our Connecting Conversations. And uh, you can pick that conversation up a couple of hours after it's happened on YouTube uh, if you're not able to watch it live, or you can simply find it on our Facebook feed as well. All of our uh, services are on all of the different formats. Just have a look at the website, have a look at our Facebook page, and you'll find all the links that you need to see there. Have a wonderful day, and God bless. As I say, the benediction, you may, if you know it, say it with me. May the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God our Father and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with us all and those whom we love this day and forevermore. Amen.